talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ken and Diana are in the newsroom. Ken and Lisa are on the street. And I'm hearing a lot of parents say, it feels like fall. Do you know why? It is fall. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Good afternoon. It is 3.09. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Oh, man, we got a jam-packed show. Lots of stuff going on. The world is spinning as the show is continuing, and uh, we'll do everything we can just to keep up with this merry-go-round as it spins and spins. Uh, as uh, Kurt was saying, Ted and uh, Lisa, sorry, Ted and Diana are in the newsroom watching and will keep us up to date on what is going on. And obviously the big chatter right now is in regard to the Huawei CFO, the Meng Wanzhou case, and we'll get you up to date on that in just a sec. Feel free to jump into the show. You can do it anytime you want. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Lots to talk about coming up on the show today. Poll questions of the day. The poll question of the day, are politicians doing enough to fight climate change? You know what I thought of when I heard this? Are we doing enough? You and me, what are we doing? I can't do anything. It's not up to me. What can government do? Uh, Would you buy an electric car? Would you use the incentive? Uh, anyway, and Hamilton, uh, Hamilton's tie cap, uh, tie cat gray cup contender question, 68% saying, yeah, it's going to happen. Uh, feel free to jump into today's poll question of the day. You can do that on our Twitter page. And as I mentioned, the phone line's always open and please send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, going to take a quick break here and a reminder, we'll be following the story in regard to, uh, the Huawei CFO and what it means moving forward. <laughs> I thought this was fabulous. Well, my wife did. Uh, Hudson Bay, uh, no longer responsible for the Canadian Olympic outfits. Instead, Lululemon has the job. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, uh, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa PR, how are you? I hope you're well. I am doing fine, Scott. Thank you for asking. All right, let's uh, let's talk about the situation with the Olympic wear and and the contract moving from Hudson Bay right to Lululemon. I understand it's for four Olympics. Uh, your thoughts on that? This is a pretty prestigious post to be holding. I think I remember you last time talking about uh, the Canadian tuxedo. <laughs> uh, your thoughts on this change and what this does for both brands. You know, first of all, I think that Lululemon is a quintessentially Canadian brand and, you know, their product is great. Yes, they have had their issues, but what company hasn't? And considering their longevity and they still maintain their position of, you know, most sought after in terms of athletic wear and in that space. And it just makes a lot of sense. First of all, it's Canadian. Second of all, they have a lot of style with their clothes. Thirdly, they stand for quality and, you know, they also uh, try to deal and work with a lot of integrity. And it's interesting because they managed to have a, what is it, a four Olympic deal? Yeah, I think it is four, yeah. So, you know, this is not just going to be a flash in the pan. So what this shows is, is that, you know, the COC is investing in this brand partnership, not just a one-off or a two-off, but really for four Olympics. So, you know, they can still have the opportunity, if it doesn't become perfect for this one, that they can still sort of do their own market testing and see the reaction to what the Olympic wear will look like. Because I need to tell you, as soon as I found out, Scott, I phoned up a friend of mine 
who's the manager of the Lululemon, you know, up here in, in mm-hmm. Richmond Hill. And I said, when are you getting the stuff in? <laughs> and he said soon. So I, I need to tell you that I think that it's going to play very well. And what's interesting is, is that it might even, Olympic wear may even play better with a, a, a wider demographic. It, because both men and women wear the brand. Kids wear the brand. I mean, they take you, you know, sort of from like cradle to grave. Anybody can wear Lululemon. They have enough stores. They have their supply chain is down pat. They have a great website that does order fulfillment. You know, they just sort of check all the boxes. So it's not a surprise to me um, why they chose them as a partner. Younger, hipper brand anyway. Does it, like you said, it does, it does encompass a, a wide umbrella. That being said, is it a hipper brand? know if it's a hipper brand i mean like you look at the bay was is the bay a hip brand maybe the bay thought they would get sort of a halo effect of being a hip brand by associating themselves with the olympics but you know what happens is is the execution so the bay gets you know the nod of being the official olympic wear and then they got to execute so you know you you're happy for about 48 hours until the designs come in and then you're thinking "Uh oh so i i think that the execution is going to matter, but I think that Lululemon has always been able to turn over and stay current and create designs that Canadians continue to buy season after season. The difference with the Bay is the Bay sells other people's designs. The Bay doesn't necessarily yeah, exactly. their own stuff. Yeah. So Lululemon has that. And I think that when the COC, the Canadian Olympic Committee, goes looking for a partner, you know, they look and they say, okay, so what really didn't work with the bay? And it may have been the design element. So when you're searching for another partner, you want to at least shore up that gap. And I think they did that very successfully with this choice. Will this be as successful as the roots period for Olympic wear? I think that's the goal, right? Like, you know, that's, you know, when they say hashtag goals, that's what everybody tries to do. Hmm. So I remember when Roots came, and I think it was, um, what was it, the first Winter Olympics? I think it was in Seoul, Scott, I can't remember. I can't remember, yeah. So anyways, I saw them marching, and for the first time, the camera panned on that winter jacket and those tams. And I turned to my husband, and I said, you're not going to believe who just walked in, but it was the country of Roots. Yeah, And that one camera image, I remember it like yesterday. And everybody was like, what? After mm. years of really dismal-looking Olympic <laughs> uniforms that look yeah. like, with no disrespect to flight attendants, but that's what they look like. <laughs> yeah. And then you get the coolest thing ever, and then you have, you know, I remember when the royal princes were young and they came with Prince Charles to Vancouver, and what happens is that big shot on the front page of the Globe yeah. and Mail, I, I do have a memory of something, Scott, and it shows, I think it was Michael Budman from Roots handing the kids a cap. Yeah, very cool. I mean, and the mitts and all of that. That's yeah. cool. The mitts, it, I had it all. Well, it'll be interesting to see if we. It'll be interesting to see if we get back there with Lululemon. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. If you're all about drama and gossip, well, this isn't for you. This is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou uh, coming to an agreement 
with U.S. officials in regard to a deferred prosecution agreement, which uh, has involved her entering a non, uh, a not guilty plea. And then, in, and again, we don't know what the real, real other side of the deferred prosecution agreement is, but there's some sort of admission of wrongdoing either on her part of, uh, on her part or the part of Huawei, uh, and, and sort of keeps her out of this. So, uh, let's find out more about this deferred prosecution agreement. Gordon Holding is with us, director of the China Institute Political Science at the University of Alberta. Good afternoon, Gordon. How are you today? I am well, thank you. Uh, is it a surprise for you today that uh, the Huawei CFO is in court virtually in New York and we are talking about a deferred prosecution agreement? Well, the idea that there would be such agreement is not a surprise in the sense that it is something that has been potentially in the works, but certainly I had no inkling that this was going to happen today, which is dominating the new cyclone. That, that certainly was a surprise to me. So explain what is happening here, and because obviously this has been going on for a while, behind closed doors, between countries, between lawyers. What is happening now? Sure. Well, I think what's, what's happening now is something that had been um, on and off in discussions between Huawei and the Justice Department of the United States as to whether there could not be a plea deal by which Huawei uh, or Madam Meng or both uh, might um, accept responsibility in some fashion for the breach of U.S. sanctions on Iran, and that in exchange, the United States would drop the extradition request which they had lodged with Canada, which led to Meng Wanzhou's arrest, and, and then indirectly attention to Canadians, etc. So this is, this is a deal which, if, if it goes through, would allow Madame Meng um, free to, to leave as uh, soon as the Canadian judge uh, lifted the order holding her uh, detained. And that could happen uh, if this goes forward very quickly. Now, what will this mean in regard to her personally and pleading guilty or not guilty? Well, it's still not clear whether it would, and it may be deliberately fuzzy. This is, I think, mm. something that's been negotiated for some, under negotiation for some time. Exactly what would she admit to? Uh, what would Huawei admit to? It's not clear. It's possible, and probably what the U.S. Would, have, would seek would be a clear admission of guilt on her behalf for having deceived um, bankers in Hong Kong about the ties between uh, Huawei and a supposed subsidiary, a linked company that had been trading with Iran in breach of U.S. law. We don't know what would happen there. I suspect on her side and on the Huawei side, They'd want words that skate around any personal guilt on her part. So how will China sell this, both at home and away, uh, as, as, as a victory, as moving forward? And how will this, what does this do for relations between China and the rest of the world? Well, I think that the Chinese will have no trouble coming up with a line. Uh, they, of course, control uh, all state media, all media for that matter, in, 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 in China that will say, in effect, the United States uh, has recognized that it's okay. They finally uh, come to their senses and allowing Madame Meng uh, to depart. The whole thing was a sham, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, the, their listeners and readers will be dependent upon the, the, the details and the spin that's given by the Chinese state. Uh, they, that will be very easily done by them. 
because they've already characterized right from the get-go uh, what the, the U.S. Justice Department had done as unfair and, and uh, without merit. And obviously the two Michaels at the center of all of this being held now for well over a thousand days. Uh, we hear that if there is a release, it will not be immediate because that would admit guilt on their part as these two cases uh, being related and such. However, how do you think that's going to sit with Canadians when it, it, when and if she goes free or goes back to China and, and the two Michaels are still sitting there in prison? I think that the initial reaction of the Assuming Madame Meng is released and departs shortly from Vancouver, the initial views of Canadians may be that this would give hope to the release of the two Michaels. So that might almost be somewhat positive. However, I think the, the reaction, tempered reaction of Canadians will depend entirely on how long it takes for the two Michaels to be released. If this is a matter of a few days, uh, given, as you noted, they've been held for a thousand days, it may not matter that much, and they'll be delighted to see them go free. If this drags on for weeks and months, which it could well, I think that that will help set, uh, um, freeze, I suppose, negative views about the Chinese actions from the get-go. However, of course, when they are allowed to go free, which I believe will happen at some point, uh, people will be delighted for them and their families. But I, I think a long delay would simply reconfirm for Canadians the capricious nature of the uh, of their of their arrest and the fact that it was linked to to Madame Mo. As we said earlier, these negotiations have been going on behind closed doors for a period of time. Why this announcement now? Does it have anything to do with the results or a uh, the finish uh, finishing of a Canadian election? I wonder about that. My guess is that the U.S. Um, Justice Department already deep in the negotiations will not have paid too much attention uh, to the election or to its outcome. Uh, however, they also had to be mindful that there's a decision coming soon from the Canadian court in looking at the extradition request. Now, who knows how that would come? I can't, certainly can't predict what judges are going to decide. If that judge um, were to free her, uh, she could leave without any plea deal. So there might be a bit of incentive for them to get what they can um, avoiding the possibility that she might be somehow exonerated by the extradition court and allowed to leave. I'm just speculating there. I think it may also simply be that the negotiations are long and complex on fine details of guilt, um, uh, recognition by Huawei and or by her, and that this is something simply took a long time to get done. So what does this do for Canada-China relations? Does this really change things until the two Michaels are released? I mean, in the end, we still detained her for a period of time as well, or is this just another small mend in the fence? Well, I think it's maybe a small mend in the fence. If it leads to the timely release of the two Michaels, um, I mean, the relationships in Canada-China could hardly get worse, so there's only one direction, really, and that was somewhat up. But I think it would be an illusion to think there's going to be some rubber band-like snapback to the way things were before. I think public opinion is very jaundiced now towards China. I think both governments uh, have slung a lot of mud in each direction, and there's not going to be a, a lot of trust there for a long time. On the other hand, trade relationship has not been much damaged. We sold more to China in 2020 uh, than we did in previous years. That's been been doing very well, booming by comparison to trade with other major economies. 
Gordon Holden with us, director of the China Institute, Political Science, University of Alberta. Gordon, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Remember SNC-Lavalin in the case uh, way back when with Jody Wilson-Raybould and the Prime Minister's office and allegations of uh, trying to force a, speaking of, deferred prosecution agreement uh, into this uh, situation? Now hearing more about SNC, uh, this is a different scenario, but uh, two uh, SNC former top execs have been charged with fraud, fraud and forgery uh, by the RCMP. The investigation into the alleged criminal wrongdoing relates to bribes that were paid in exchange for obtaining contracts. Uh, this in regard to work, construction work done in Montreal uh, between 1997 and 2004. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Peter Graf is with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks. Here we are talking about another deferred prosecution agreement today, oddly enough, with the Huawei CFO case and relating back to when we first heard that with SNC-Lavalin. Uh, is this the story that keeps on giving, or is this just a series of, of past uh, incidences that are just now coming to bear, fruit is coming to bear? Well, I mean, that's certainly how SNC-Lavalin uh, would like to uh, present it. I mean, their argument was that these were people who no longer work for them, and a uh, situation that took place 20 years ago uh, and so you know they're quite pleased ultimately that it looks like the federal government is coming through with a deferred prosecution agreement so that ultimately they pay a fine but that this doesn't you know get in the way of laws that prevent them from bidding on public sector contracts uh, you know based on having been, been found guilty of uh, trying to bribe uh, federal government officials. Uh, obviously, we remember the role this has played in current politics. Any reason to believe this environment has changed? As you mentioned, they're selling this as that's past scenario, past water under the bridge, past executives and such. Um, are, is there anything to display that the environment has changed in any way? Uh, I mean, not really. Uh, obviously, it's an ongoing process to try and root out cor- corruption in the uh, in the distribution of uh, public sector contracts. But, I mean, these deferred prosecution agreements really reflect the fact that, you know, when, when governments try to get tough with these organizations, uh, they also are worried about what the outcomes will be, because it's not, you know, Joe's paving that's involved in these, but large mm. uh, organizations uh, employing thousands of people across the country and, uh, many cases bringing in uh, income, a foreign uh, income through uh, the export of their services. So, you know, it's a situation, we, we talk about banks being too big to fail, and these are organizations that are too big to jail. And uh, as a result, we get these situations where it's a bit of a slap on the wrist. And so, you know, ultimately, on the we saw this with SNC-Lavalin. On the one hand, particularly uh, politicians from the Montreal area were saying, well, why are we, you know, putting so much emphasis on this? We actually want SNC-Lavalin to do well because a lot of jobs are involved with that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's that old quote, you know, if the penalty for a crime is a fine, uh, then the law only exists for the lower class. And, you know, this is a sort of similar situation. Well, how how is it that certain organizations can engage in openly corrupt behavior um, but then, you know, argue that they should just pay a kind of a mi- min- minor fine rather than face uh, stricter rules. If we do that, don't we then just open the door to, you know, corruption because there's not really much of a penalty to it. But, I mean, I mean this is a, the kind of classic trade-off. If we, if we ultimately uh, deliver infrastructure through these kinds of forums, there will, there will always be this incentive to corruption and uh, real limits in our ability to police it. 
how much does this have to do with the fact that political uh, that Quebec is just so valuable politically, and this is a political hot potato? Obviously, SNC Lavalin considered as one of the crown jewels uh, of Quebec, and if you're going to uh, scrutinize SNC Lavalin, you're going to lose in Quebec. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, that plays a role. But, uh, you know, if we could think of some large uh, Ontario, uh, you know, design-build construction firms uh, who rely largely on, you know, on, on contracts, if they were to end up in this kind of situation, uh, you know, I suspect would hear a different tune as uh, the people whose jobs would be uh, at risk, you know, were uh, earning good incomes in downtown Toronto. Uh, you know, and we're tied in various ways to a whole lot of well-paid construction jobs, uh, you know, down the 401. So, you know, I, I think, yeah, a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's, uh, <laughs> it's a big economic engine uh, in Quebec. I mean, there's maybe the additional thing that it was also seen at a long time as, you know, a real sign of uh, Quebecers' prowess and their ability to be engaged in international leading uh, design-build construction consulting work. Um, you know, so that has a bit of an additional resonance. But, you know, again, uh, if we probably did a better job of, of rooting out corruption in the Ontario construction industry, we'd probably be faced with some, you know, similar situations with, you know, big names not wanting to to, to take a uh, significant penalty, uh, at least in terms of a, a uh, of being found guilty, um, precisely because it would limit the ability to uh, bid on future contracts. Is there political fallout here? Is there pressure on politi- uh, politicians to do something? Obviously, there's a pattern here with SNC-Lavalin, although the company says these are people from the past. Uh, is there pressure on politicians to, to get them to come clean? Uh, well, I mean, there's obviously some uh, pressure around transparency in, in, the, in the, the delivery of contracts. Um, but, I mean, the reason this became a big issue for SNC originally was precisely because some bureaucrats said, no, you shouldn't have a deferred prosecution agreement. They should, you know, face the fine. Sorry, not face the fine, but, you know, face the charges. And if they're found mm-hmm. guilty of the charges, they can't bid for contracts. So, you know, that's what that's what made it, you know, political. And in the rest of the cases, you have governments that, yeah, they don't want to uh, see corruption uh, because ultimately it's going to drive up the prices for them. Uh, but at the same time, they don't want to knock these firms out of bidding for contracts because if you have fewer firms bidding, then you're likely not to get the best price. So uh, there's a lot of competing incentives uh, when dealing with these kinds of situations. How do you think Jody Wilson-Raybould is reacting to this? Well, I mean, in the narrowest sense, uh, I don't think it actually has much to do with her case, except that it's the same. No, it's a different, yeah. Um but nevertheless, to the extent that this probably creates a few difficult days for the Liberal government because people, you know, see the same name and are reminded of, of her situation, uh, you know, presumably it uh, brings a certain smile to her face. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, citizens uh, have reasons to be concerned when the, these things happen. Right? When, when firms are willing to give, you know, $2 million, $2 million kickbacks on bridge contracts to uh, federal employees who are making those decisions, well... You know, we aren't fools. Uh, you know, that means that we paid probably more than $2 million, uh yeah. extra to buy the, to build that bridge. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's reasons to be concerned with these revelations. And figuring out ways to actually, you know, make penalties stick, knowing that um, there's also a cost that comes to us in terms of lost jobs and so on. You know, is there another way we could uh, arrange this so that we could police corruption without, you know, ultimately having to hurt ourselves if, if we want to bring charges? 
Peter Grave with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, uh, two former top execs from SNC-Lavalin charged with fraud and forgery by the RCMP. Peter, thanks for your time. Have a great weekend. Be well. And you too. The Huawei CFO, Meng Wanzhou, is, it looks like, soon free to leave. They have rele- They have agreed to a... Um, a, a, a an agreement, a, a an agreement which allows, and and again, I, I guess if she abides by the terms of this uh, of this agreement, this prosecution agreement, this deferred prosecution agreement, that uh, if she abides by the terms, the U.S. prosecution will dismiss the charges that paves her way for the release obviously after that the extradition uh request from uh from the united states to canada is dropped and off she goes uh that being said we certainly don't know the terms of the deal other than she has pled not guilty to this what's just been fascinating is there was a news conference in which uh meng wanzhou was out there thanking people which uh is is very bizarre and and i'll get to that uh with our next guest christian leprecht it's it's quite a it, it was quite a scene uh christian is the professor at both the royal military college of canada and queen's university and fellow at the mcdonald laurie institute and author of the new book intelligence as democratic uh, statecraft it is published by oxford university press christian is with us now christian thanks for the time i hope you're doing well I am indeed, Scott. Good afternoon. Uh, before we even get to the nuts and bolts of all of this, did you happen to catch the news conference that uh, that the Huawei CFO just held and your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I'm afraid that I missed the news conference, so I'm happy to take I, a I will, I, I will give you a little, uh, some, uh, a bit of an update here. I, I was very surprised. Uh, she stood up in front of reporters. Uh, she apologized to Canadians for the inconvenience of all of this. Uh, she thanked uh, the Chinese embassy in Canada for their help, her lawyers. Uh, she thanked Canada for following uh, the rule of law. She said that the past two or three years have been quite difficult for her, um, and it is it has been uh, hard for her, and that she has learned some lessons out of this and has grown uh, out of this, but really kind of played the victim in all of this and when they came back from the news conference the first the first point that the reporter made and i would echo this is what about the two michaels um it's odd that she seems to be claiming a victory here and playing the victim uh, through all of this your thoughts yeah, well, most victims don't live in multi-million-dollar homes and uh, basically are were free to leave their homes, uh, provided they adhere to uh, certain conditions um, in uh, very expensive cars. Uh, so uh, I think it's a bit of a stretch, but of course the um, press conference would not reflect uh, her own views. They would reflect very carefully scripted remarks uh, by her lawyers, uh, by the regime in Beijing, and by the Chinese embassy in terms of the signal that she would want to send, of course, because it, ha- it has to be consistent with the remarks that the Chinese regime has made throughout this process and not look to be in conflict with those. And so I think this is what we got. She was basically um, reading the remarks that the regime wanted to convey and wanted the world to hear because, of course, they would know that this would be a story that would be reported on widely and so an opportunity for the regime to get its message out uh, now that the U.S. 
um, administration uh, has been able to signal uh, its message loud and clear to uh, the Chinese regime and to allies and partners. Are you surprised that they held such a press conference? I thought she would just slip away on a plane and that would be it to, to after put everybody through this and then stand up and try to sell it that way. I think this is going to irritate Canadians. Well, I think this was always about politics to begin with. This was never primarily about uh, uh, prosecution for wrongdoing. It was always um, about, on the one hand, the Chinese regime sticking to its guns, uh, that Chinese corporations can basically do whatever they want as long as it's in China's interests. And the American administration, under its um, policy change and strategic doctrine change in 2018 of persistent engagement, sending a message in this case of economic deterrence uh, that Chinese corporations, and their senior executives, uh, the Americans know what you're up to, they're tracking you, and you will not get away with it to send a message that the impunity is going to stop here and now. And to this effect, they could not have picked a more prime target than the crown jewel of the Chinese tech industry and the senior executive in that crown jewel, as opposed to going, for instance, for lower hanging fruit uh, within the company to send this message and also at the same time to give license to allies and to partners uh, that the U.S. will have your back if you take action against Huawei and against Chinese corporations that misbehave. And we saw that just this week. I mean, Lithuania, a country of 3 million people that came out swinging against certain Huawei mobile phone products and one other Chinese mobile phone maker. And I think we're going to see more of that uh, with the U.S., having emboldened allies and partners uh, to demonstrate that certain types of behavior um, is simply not acceptable um, if you want to be a corporation that acts maturely among the international community. Is that the win, Christian, for the U.S. here? Because it looks like she's gotten off in the sense that she's, you know, the part of the deferred prosecution agreement was that she would get to uh, obviously save face and plead not guilty. But the message has been sent, the shot across the bow. You, you start doing this sort of stuff, we're going to come after you. Is that the win for the U.S. here? This was never about prosecuting Meng Wanzhou, in my view. This yeah. was always about sending a clear signal to the Chinese regime, Chinese corporations, and Chinese executives. And I think the... Did they get that message, Christian? Did they get that? Is that message delivered? Well, I think we'll have to see. A lot of this will depend on how these corporations have changed their behavior, much of which is not in the public domain. So it'll be more difficult to tell, but certainly I think the deferred prosecution agreement was always on the table from the beginning. And I think the Justice Department told Meng Wanzhou that um, this is your get out of jail free card and you better take it. And I think the the defense basically played for time, tried to see if they could usurp uh, the extradition system, which would be difficult to do because the threshold is relatively low compared to an actual prosecution. Um, and when it became clear that uh, Meng Wanzhou was uh, more likely than not to face extradition, uh, her lawyers went back to the Justice Department and said, OK, let's talk, let's talk about uh, a DPA. Um, mm. So I think um, for the U.S., 
the advantage in dragging this out was that it was uh, a good two and a half, almost three years of Chinese water torture, because every time she showed up in court, it would make international headlines and it would remind the international community what Huawei and what their executive were up to. Um, And so I think that was really the objective by the United States, this sort of Chinese water torture um, and that other Chinese corporations should get ready to face similar types of pain from the United States, because the United States is really the only country in the world that can exert that Mm. sort of pressure and that has the global reach in terms of intelligence and law enforcement to execute this sort of a campaign of what we saw here. Christian Leprac with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute. Uh, Thanks for the explanation, uh, Christian. That was great. Be well. Have a great weekend. My sincere pleasure. And to you and to listeners, a lovely weekend. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right, it was interesting. We're talking to the thirsty cactus earlier on today. Uh, he not expecting, they not expecting uh, any sort of situation with the new legal uh, vaccine certificate uh, program, which has started. And by, I think, October 22nd, the new digitized app version of that will come out. Uh, obviously, earlier on this week, uh, the actual certificate did come out. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Vivek Krishnamurti, uh, professor of law and director of the Canadian Inter- Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic at the University of Ottawa and with us now. Vivek, thanks so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you, Scott. I'm glad to be here. What are your thoughts as you sit back now and have watched this debate transpire over vaccine passports or certificates or whatever you want to call them? What are your thoughts on where we are and the journey it's been to get here? Yeah, so... I'm a law professor, not a public health expert. Uh, that being said, talking to the public health folks, uh, it seems that um, you know we're at a phase of the pandemic with the Delta variant where we really need to do everything we can to prevent transmission. So the question is, what do we do as a society to permit people to sort of live their everyday lives as best as they can uh, with minimal restrictions while combating the pandemic. And, you know, the the scientific evidence is pretty overwhelming that vaccination is very effective in preventing severe disease and reducing transmission. So I think that's the context in which we had to think about these vaccine certificate mandates, right, um, as actually allowing us to do a lot of things when we can show that we, ha- we have been vaccinated, right? So uh, things that would be risky without vaccination are a bit less risky with vaccination. That's the idea of certifying uh, your status before, you know, going to a restaurant uh, or accessing certain kinds of, of services in close quarters. Are you surprised we're still having this debate? Because I thought once, because there was the debate about whether we should have it or whether we shouldn't. Um, you know, first at first it was sort of about security and the threat of forgery. And then it was, well, no, where does this actually allow us to go? So it's kind of two different debates. But once now that we've got to a certificate or passport, like a lot of the provinces already have, are you surprised there's still debate about this? Because at the end of the day, either you're in or you're out. No, I'm not surprised. And I think that's quite healthy to be, you know, having these kinds of debates. Um, You know, this is not an easy kind of measure for governments to implement, right? Clearly, we're not used to the idea of showing health information to get into a bar, right? It's kind of an extraordinary measure, but it reflects the extraordinary times that we're in. So, so that's fine. I think having a debate is always a good thing. Uh, I'm just glad that uh, we're finally down this path because I think the evidence for the efficacy of, of passport 
uh, or certificate regimes has been increasing for quite a while. Uh, this is the first weekend where, in fact, businesses, what have you, will be using these or asking for them. What, do you, what are you anticipating? Well, I hope that there's uh, compliance. I, you know, I think that people, Canadians, are generally a pretty law-abiding and calm and polite bunch, and I hope that that prevails as people are being asked to show their certificates and that we don't have um, you know, any uh, unfortunate incidents of, of resistance or, uh, you know, and obviously there's a, a significant anti-vaccine movement. We saw that during the election campaign recently. Um, I just hope that the rollout um, is smooth. And I also hope that this does incentivize some folks who've been hesitant uh, to get vaccinated. You know, it reminds me of uh, of the mask debate way back when, Vivek, where, you know, people are upset where they had to wear masks or such. And I'm thinking at this point, people already know that the vaccine certificate program will be in place and what it will or will not allow them to do, depending upon on their uh, depending on their status. So I'm not sure I anticipate people going out just to cause trouble unless, like you said, they're protesters who are who are looking for that purpose, because people kind of already know if you don't have it, you're not getting in. Well, I hope that message is out. Um, you know, I have heard of some isolated incidents in other provinces and other countries, right, where uh, people have reacted poorly to being uh, asked to uh, or you know denied access to, say, a restaurant or something because they couldn't provide their proof of vaccination. So I do hope that the message is out. And this certainly helps uh, the fact that we're talking today uh, uh, to reinforce the fact that this requirement is now enforced in Ontario. Businesses are concerned about uh, any confrontation. They're concerned about their legalities, um, you know, what they can and cannot do. Has that been clear enough? Can you shed any light on that, Vivek? Well, I think um, certainly there's probably some room for further clarity and guidance from the government on what businesses are supposed to do. Uh, Having gone through the regulations, it's pretty clear that uh, the businesses that have to check um, uh, your sort of vaccination uh, status in order to, to, you know, allow you to enter their establishments, uh, that they're mandated to do so, and that there are actually some pretty significant penalties if they fail to do so appropriately. Um, so for the business community, uh, people who think that this is optional, it really isn't. Um, there's some pretty strong uh, penalties if you're non-compliant. Um, so I'm not sure if that's well understood. I also don't know just how... Um, uh, how much guidance has been given to businesses on what's acceptable and what's not. Of course, we're in a bit of a transitional period here. I yeah. think the rollout of the app will make that quite a bit simpler and more streamlined, as we've seen in other places around the world, uh, where app-based verification just makes it easier for businesses to tell um, if someone's certification is, is, is valid or not. And at the end of the day, um, you know, some have businesses I've been reading, you know, that, well, we, we've tried education, we've tried this. And at the end of the day, that's not really up to the business. Uh, and with the vaccine certificate, isn't the business just, hey, either you have it or you don't have it. And I don't have to debate you on this. That's the law now. Right. I think that's exactly right. We were in a bit of a difficult situation earlier where some businesses and organizations were a bit out front in saying that uh, we want people to be vaccinated before they enter our premises. Now it's clear, right? It's the law. Yeah. There really isn't a choice for um, the businesses and other establishments that are covered um, by the mandate in terms of verifying uh, vaccination status. Are we making too much of all of this? Will this weekend come and go and there'll be no big deals? You'll always get the odd Yahoo, but other than that, it'll be smooth. I really hope that's the case. Uh, I really hope <laughs> you, that's the case. You're not sure, uh, Vivek. Pardon me? 
you're not sure. Well, I just don't know. I can't predict the future. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do believe that this has been coming for a while, and I think it's pretty clear that in Ontario, there was some reluctance on the part of the provincial government to go down um, this route. So, especially given the experience in Alberta in recent weeks, um, I think people here understand that we are in a different phase of the pandemic and that this um, really is a necessary measure, um, right? And I think it was sort of a, a bit mm. of a last resort um, uh, in Ontario. So it, that's kind of a good thing, right? We, we're, we're introducing this because we need to, not just because we, we feels like a, the right thing to do, I think, right? It really is a sense of necessity around it. Vivek Krishnamurti is with us, Professor of Law and Director of the Canadian Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic at the University of Ottawa, moving forward with our vaccine certificates. Vivek, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. 428, news on the way. We talked about this a little earlier on in the week, and obviously this centers around uh, the discussion, which has been going on for an, long, uh, an awful long time, but has really increased or really did increase uh, once, of course, we made that tragic discovery uh, underneath a Kamloops residential school of um, tons, hundreds of uh, a mass grave of unidentified uh, former residential school students that opened up a, a discussion and and more discovery across the country as now all of these sites uh, will eventually be uh, searched to find if there were similar situations in other uh, residential schools during that period of time. Obviously, that has spawned a, a great discussion in regard to uh, institutions, statues, memorials, that sort of thing. Now the Ontario Human Rights Commission is seeking your input. Uh, they're looking for the public's input as it develops a policy statement on the display of derogatory names, words, and images. The commission said it wants to address what it calls a quickly evolving issue that has increasingly seen Indigenous and racialized communities call for the removal of statues of historic figures perceived as colonizers, slave owners, or those who have advanced racist policies. It also pointed out to growing calls for uh, officials to rename roads, buildings, even towns, other institutions named uh, after historic figures for all of the same reason. You can see how this discussion has greatly progressed and how new policy is needed. They're looking for your input up until October 22nd through the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Let's bring in Frederick John Packer, Professor of International Conflict Resolution with the University of Ottawa and with us now. Frederick, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you. So why is the Ontario Human Rights Commission doing this? What We certainly know the discussion and, and why, but what is the objective moving forward with this? What are they trying to accomplish here? Well, uh, it, it's, of course, hard to read exactly their minds, but uh, one can surmise from the uh, context that there has been, as you just described, you know, a rising uh, interest to the character of kind of public discourse, uh, a number of uh, issues, awareness raising around, uh, you know, what where some of these names come from, what what some of these uh, representations are uh, referring to, statues and so forth, and that for many people uh, there are you know basically negative implications and if not outright uh, harms that they feel are generated by those. So there there's been some response, some reaction, and uh, I think it's reasonable that the commission is trying to survey essentially the public to get a better understanding of where the public stands. The Ontario right, uh, Human Rights Commission has said this is a quickly evolving issue. How do you stay ahead of this 
and yet find the balance, uh, obviously through input. But uh, this is a very fine line, isn't it, for the for the Human Rights Commission, or is it? Well, it, it is uh, a fine line because of the character of the subject matter. So, so it's a bit problematical. First of all, there is no formal dis- um, definition of discrimination, neither in the Human Rights Code uh, nor, nor generally practiced in, in many institutions uh, in our country. Uh, so there are general prohibitions of discrimination, but not even defined. So the tendency is to uh, wait for cases and respond to cases, as the Human Rights Commission has done, actually. That's reactive, it's time-consuming, and those tend to be generated... Uh, you know, when people are really disgruntled. So I think they're trying to get out in front of this. They're trying to say, okay, we know this is happening. I mean, we've seen what's happened at Ryerson and many other places. Now, can we get a better sense? The the second problem of this is that uh, it's rather subjective, not objective. It depends a bit on public sentiments. And uh, even as the Human Rights Commission says in their own uh, public relations statement or, or their press release, uh, that these are perceptional issues. You know, if people feel... Uh, that there is a pejorative uh, effect, and that's contextual. Will this discussion now move to the Ontario Human Resources Commission, away from the communities, away from municipalities, and all of a sudden it'll be up to them to decide what the solution is here? Because up until now, it's been sort of an organic thing that started uh, uh, with groups, special interest groups and such, and then got the attention of city councils. And it's, it's you know, there really hasn't been a common policy uh, across different geographic locations. Will we then rely on this commission to solve this problem? Is it pushing well, it off to them? Yeah, I, do, I don't quite think so. And I even have to say, I hope not. What we don't want is a kind of, uh, a language or name police. We don't want some kind of uh, yeah. uh, authoritarian body that starts running around saying we don't like this name or in our view this or or if some people suddenly feel uh, you know badly. I mean the commission again they use the word disturbed. I mean there is no human right not to be disturbed. There is no human right not to feel badly. Uh, you have to demonstrate that there's an actual negative effect. Uh, uh, or, or either an intention uh, to cause harm. So that comes out of context, out of the specific elements. And really, we would like to see this, I think one would like to see this, left to communities to understand what that means in context. However, what the Commission is correct, I think, in doing, is to, to, to get in front of this, is to get a sense of what are the kind of uh, parameters, what would be the guidelines that should uh, should. Um, uh, really inform those kind of decisions where they need to be take, uh, taken. And if you want to jump into the discussion, you can take the online survey up until October 22nd through the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Joining us, Frederick John Packer, professional or sorry, professor of the International Conflict Resolution at the University of Ottawa. Frederick, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Take care. If you're all about drama and gossip, well, this isn't for you. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Ted and Diana here uh, out of the new, well, in the newsroom to join the the uh, roundtable here, but away from the world spinning around. And it's been a busy day, man. Lots of stuff going on. Good to uh, see and hear you both. Are you doing well today, Diana and Ted? Yeah, good. I'm doing good. Me on the other, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel good. Friday, it's a beautiful day. So, yeah. What are you going to do this weekend? What, 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 what do you got? Uh, what do you got plans? Who me? 
Nothing. Yeah. Let me see. Uh, go home tonight. Watch watch the uh, football <laughs> game. Tomorrow I'll get up. I'll go for a run. Um, do my laundry like I always do. Maybe do some grocery shopping and watch football all weekend long. It's I, really a exciting. Full life. weekend. I'm telling for you, the Teddy Man. You know, how much I, you running now? How long? How long do you run now? Uh, not as much as I used to because these old bones don't. Uh, uh, take it. I go about 5K just over about three, four times a week. That's about it. And, and that's around the grocery store. Uh, what about you, Diana? Uh, my mom and my sister-in-law are coming down to are coming to Hamilton tomorrow, and we are going to go for lunch and do a bit of shopping at some local businesses. Nice. Yes. Where are you from? Where are they from? Uh, my sister-in-law not? lives in East End, Toronto, and my mom and my dad, they live in Newmarket, so north there of Toronto. Go. All right. Poll question of the day, are politicians doing enough to fight climate change? 84% are saying no because we live in a society where government has to do everything. Are we asking ourselves this question? Or are we doing enough to fight climate change, Ted? What are you doing? Well, <laughs> he's running. <laughs> yeah, right. He's, yeah. he's not taking his golf cart. He's running. Exactly. exactly yeah. Uh, basically, it's what can I do to help this problem? What can I do? Cut, cut back on uh, trips in the car? try to do that um recycle which i do constantly yeah a matter of fact yeah. i got a gold box from the city of hamilton you know those things for for recycling it's like a <laughs> it's like a participation medal but i got one a couple wow. years ago because they did such a great job so see wow. see the studio audience is impressed you you got a gold recyclable box yeah how does that how does that not get stolen uh, I mean, if, if you were my neighbor, I'd be ripping that thing up. But I guess everybody knows, oh, that's Ted's. That's now, wait right, a sec. Is it a, it, is it a real uh, award-winning uh, recyclable container, or is it just a blue one that's been spray-painted? I don't know here? what's going on, but it's basically gold, and they give it to people and, that uh, have earned their uh, stripes, so to speak, by recycling. I'm quite proud of it. No, they, it, do, they do this. I could drive by Ted's house and see if I could see this recycling day. I'm literally Googling when his how, garbage day is right so now. So are you Thursday. lying to us? There is no Gold. Is there a gold bin? Yes, there is. is. There really oh, what do you want me to do? What do you want me Wait to do? Sec. Snap a picture and send oh, it? Oh, there is. I Googled it. See? I Googled it. <laughs> Share with the class so, what it says. Share with the class so what it says. Scott, listen to this, Diana, if Win- you will. Right. Winning a gold box is as easy as one, two, three. And, and I should say this is a yellow box. They're called gold boxes. Yeah. But it's given to homes that show how they sort their garbage. See? Uh, register to have your address placed. Yep. Put your green bin and blue box and trash or yard waste at the curb by 7 a.m. every week. Yep. And one bag of garbage or less at the curb yep. every week. Yep, 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 yep. See? Wait, you registered? You registered? No, for I this? didn't. You registered I, for I didn't, actually. You have to enter I, to get a gold box. Well, maybe they've changed one? the rules, but the fact <laughs> is that I got it one day and it's like, oh, look at this. Look, I was yelling, hey, look at this. And the neighbors all, who cares? But anyway, so. Yes. So, the guys are going around on the trucks and just saying, you know what? I noticed Ted's been very diligent yes. this time. So yes. Apparently, that's what it says so. here. See? Diligent. Yes. So who decides who gets a gold box? The people probably that are driving around uh, making sure that people recycle properly. No, no, no. Hold on. There's uh, a system. Oh. It's a trash audit. Ah. We randomly suggest, select addresses oh. and determine They've which neighborhoods get a trash audit. See? See? But the so fact is that I did win trash, one. Ted. But the fact is that I did win one. I, well, give me some. That's very impressive. Uh, see, see, you. Everybody <laughs> thinks I'm just a crusty old guy who yells at people to get off my lawn. Maybe I do, but wow. I know how to recycle. I I am impressed. You have been Thank so you. diligent with see? the recycling that you've yeah. even. Uh, I or are you sure it wasn't just? 
Are you sure it just wasn't your box was beaten up so bad you just went back and got one from the town? Yeah. Just, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. These are because I know mine are pretty beaten up pretty bad. These are not uh, handed out willy nilly, if you will. They, you know, as Diana pointed out, you have to go through a process. I didn't even know they had them. Me, See, you I know didn't what? either. We're gonna do- we're going to investigate this on Monday and find out exactly what you have to do to get a gold recycling box and why Ted got one of friend ahead of anybody else. Well, why don't we have one? I don't know <laughs> because maybe you don't recycle the way and, and I you do. Don't, you don't even you don't even know you didn't you, you don't even know what you did to get it though. Yeah, again, you have to be diligent and do your recycling properly. And I guess it was all lined up one day and, you know. It says in bold, gold boxes are awarded to super recyclers. See? Do you have a cake? I can see Ted dragging out his recycling bin, right, at the same time that his neighbors do every morning. And he just looks at them and he goes, that's nothing. You can take it from me, man. I got the gold box. Look at me. All his neighbors just look at him and go, wow, he's the recycling king. That's amazing. Scoff, if you will. Scoff. But I I earned that award. I'm quite All right, proud good for you. I want a picture. I want a picture. Yes, I want a picture of you and your gold recycling box, and I want to put it on the website. All right? <laughs> uh, all right, one last thing I want to squeeze in here. Olympic clothing. We know how Canadians love this stuff in the old roots days. Hudson Bay gone. Lululemon in. Your thoughts? Wow, that's a big change. Mm, Hudson- I, I love my stripes. I love my HBC stripes. Yep. Uh, wow! They they so had, you're taking Hudson Bay over Lululemon there? Oh Diana. yeah! Oh yeah! Really? Oh yeah! Yeah yeah! Wow! Um, it's this is a little different, but yeah, the Hudson Bay was the classic. You'd go in the store, you see all the Canadian o- Olympic stuff. It was just just gorgeous. So you know, so you don't think Lululemon's a bit hipper, Diana? Um. I do, but like I love Lululemon too. Don't get me wrong, but I feel like there's been a resurgence in the hipness with the HBC stripes. Like that's been very really? trendy over the years. Yeah, yeah, you're you know. Right. So Ted likes the Lululemon tights, don't you, Ted? <laughs> that's what he runs in. Oh yeah, I can squeeze into <laughs> those suckers. Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. Scott Radley with us now, host of the Scott Radley Show, and of course we'll take over after the six o'clock news tonight. And is with us now, Scott. Thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, and I gotta say, some of your callers on All Request Friday have excellent taste. Yeah, they do, don't they? Not all, not <laughs> all. Well, but you some know, really do. Every so often, it's nice to hear something that you've never heard before, or not in a long time. That's for sure. <laughs> I don't know whether you saw this or not, uh, but Meng Wanzhou, the uh, Huawei CFO, who landed a deferred prosecution agreement with U.S. Uh, Justice Department today, which will see her uh, plead uh, not guilty and then, um, I guess, get to leave and such. She just gave a news conference. You'd think that this person would just get on a plane and slip away. Well, the two Michaels are rotting in prison. Instead, I, 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 I couldn't believe it, Scott. She gets out and, and, and gives a press conference talking about how difficult the last couple of years have been. Mm. Uh, she apologizes to Canadians and says sorry for the inconvenience. Uh, thanks her lawyers. Thanks the Chinese embassy in Canada and, 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 and generally plays the victim. And thanks us for our, basically our hospitality. That's my word, not hers. And I'm thinking, how is this going to resonate in, with Canadians? I, I can't believe she actually had the gall to do this, but it's certainly not the first time. Well, the two Michaels are rotting in prison. And by the way, this deferred prosecution 
arbitration agreement has nothing to do with them and will not affect them. And if we're lucky, maybe they'll be happy that the Huawei CFO was released. And then what they're saying, a few months, whatever, you might see the two Michaels released. But I can't believe the gall of the Chinese Communist Party to actually tell this woman to go out and speak after this. See, I'm thrilled that she did. And, and I agree with what you just said, but I'm thrilled she did because it, 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 only when you have... It shows like what this, we're dealing with. Well, it shows what we're dealing with, but it also, in the starkest possible way, shows uh, the two differences of how the countries deal with this thing. We have someone who is being held, who is in house arrest in a million-dollar mansion in beautiful Vancouver. And Fourteen million. Okay, well, multi-million, and gets treated fine and leaves in perfect health and is free to then step out and give a press conference. And as you described very aptly, what's happening with the two Michaels is not that. And I'm quite positive that when they do get out of prison, they will not be allowed to give a press conference there because I'm sure that it would be humiliating to the Chinese government because I'm unfortunately willing to bet you they're not going to look as healthy when they get out of prison as she just did. And, um, you know, I, I've been, Scott, I've been thinking about this a lot, this whole situation, because it, also with the Olympics coming up, because the Olympics are in Beijing, and there are human mm-hmm. rights groups all over the place calling for a boycott. And I don't think that our government or any of the other Western governments, quite frankly, are going to have the stomach to risk doing that to Beijing. But I'll tell you what I would like to see, which will never, ever, ever, ever happen, but dare to dream. You know, we always have the Bay or some other company design Canada's Olympic uniforms, and there's always great debate about whether they're appropriate or good. Like last time in in Tokyo, we had jean jackets and stuff. I'd like to yeah. see Canada's official official Olympic uniforms be T-shirts with the photos of the two Michaels on the front. Wow! So that they would, when they walk into the stadium, every single Canadian. Hmm is wearing that and you know what i mean the olympic committee would lose their mind and beijing would lose their mind and other people would lose their mind but boy that would be then something that you would be saying okay we're at least we as athletes as the coc we can't do anything really but we can at least remind the world what's going on and be in their face every single day of the olympics it will never happen we're going to go there scott and we're going to just acquiesce and do what every other country does and just you know do nothing but boy, it would be, you know, it would be lovely to do it. And this is what happened today, as you say. This is the perfect illustration of the 180 degree differences in how these things are being handled in two different countries. Uh, I'm just, I'm astounded that they thought this was the smart thing to do. Christian Leprec just said, well, that those were not her words. Those were words that were not. given to her from the Chinese Communist Party. And, it, you know, it, it just amazes me that Canadians still are not able to decipher between the great Chinese Canadian immigrants that are here and what they have done and what they have escaped compared to the Chinese Communist Party, who, for some reason, we just seem to want to lie in bed with. Well, and, and next, you know, when my show comes up next, one of the things we're going to be talking about is that there are some candidates, uh, conservative candidates, mind you, and so some will say they're sore losers, but they are Chinese-Canadian candidates who say that Beijing interfered with Canada's election and and with some of the ridings and with some of the elections that were going on. And, uh, you know, once again, like what we went through, how many years in the states of arguments, political partisan arguments about whether or not Russia interfered with their election? And here you have people saying, Beijing interfered with our election, 
and you barely have heard a word of it. Like barely I don't a get word it. of this. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. But hopefully we'll, we'll open our eyes to all of this. And uh, hopefully the two Michaels will return to Canadian soil soon. Scott Radley has been with us. Scott Radley show coming up next. And, of course, scol- uh, columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. That is a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Ted and Diana, as well as Will, for producing today. As always with Hamilton Today, we leave it to you the listener for the last word, but in this case, we thought we would leave it to the Huawei CFO. I'm also grateful to Canadian people and the media friends for your tolerance. Sorry for the inconvenience.